Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dope Shit My Therapist Says, a therapeutic wellness podcast hosted by Ryan Gaddy and Lauren Fractor. We are two millennial therapists who enjoy having authentic conversations with real people who share their experiences and passions with a mental health twist. Conversations that inspire discovery of self, insight into deeper spirituality, and alternative ways to support mental health and wellness. As a reminder, this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. All topics discussed on the podcast are from the viewpoint of our guests and their personal experiences. Information shared on the podcast is not a replacement for therapy, therapeutic advice, or medical treatment. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dope Shit My Therapist Says. We are nearing the end of our first season of seasons we are doing. Uh, We have one more episode left, but we think you're going to really enjoy this episode that we have for you today. It is a little on the heavier side. So there is a trigger warning for this episode because it covers topics of suicide and mental health. Um, But we feel like you learn a lot from it but please listen at your own discretion and please make sure to take care of yourself during this episode and afterwards as well. If you're not already following us on Instagram, please do so at dope SHT therapy pod. Today on the podcast, we have Alexandra Wyman. She is an Amazon bestselling author of the suicide club. What to do when someone you love chooses death, a guide to navigate the grief process after loss by suicide. She's been a guest on a variety of podcasts, such as The Therapy Show, The Healing Trauma Podcast, and My Wake Up Call with Dr. Mark Goulston. This year, Alexandra has also spoken at the Northwest Conference on Childhood Grief 2023. Her story has also been featured in Authority Magazine and Authentic Insider. She's also the co-host of the Russian Sisters Podcast, practices pediatric occupational therapy, and lives with her son in Colorado. We had a really great time talking with Alexandra. The topic, like we said, trigger warning is suicide, but Alexandra's great. And we wish her so much luck as she continues to navigate the grieving process. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Alexandra. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually doing pretty well today. So I'm I'm really excited to be able to talk to you both today. Yes, we're really excited to have you on. As our listeners already know that today's episode is going to be more of a sensitive topic. And for that reason, we have a trigger warning. Just wanted to let listeners know one more time before we dive into the episode um, that some of the uh, topics that we're talking about today are pretty intense, but they're real and they're Alexandra's lived experience. And we're just really glad to be able to talk with you about this topic because, you know, sometimes we, we avoid this, this conversation. And I think it's really important for others who have experienced something similar or going through a really tough period in their own life, you know, and, and contemplating thoughts, ideas, et cetera. I think that this can be a really eye-opening episode. So um, just wanted to throw that out there before we start, but thank you again for being on. Um, Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, where you're from and your story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and yes, I am a big proponent of finding what tools you need on what day, um, and especially when listening to this episode. Um, So my name is Alexandra Wyman, and uh, by trade, I am a pediatric occupational therapist, so I work with kids with disabilities. Um, 
And I moved around as a kid. And then my family landed here in Colorado, where I'm based now, and went to occupational therapy school and decided I was a little a little late in that idea of going to college, finding a person, buying a house, you know, that ideal looking life. And um, in my mid 30s, ended up meeting my late husband. It was a whirlwind romance. We had um, it was just an instant soul connection. And we couldn't believe it was so, so amazing. Couldn't believe we finally found each other. Um, and we ended up deciding to stay in Colorado. And he um, actually had just moved back to Colorado from from Washington. So it worked out really nicely. Um, so essentially, we ended up getting married, buying a house and finding out we were pregnant all within one year. So lots, lots of amazingness in in one year. Um, and then our son was born and a little over a year after um, our son was born, my husband drove up into the mountains in Colorado and he did end up ending his life there. And talk about a difference in trajectory. So um, I finally was excited to have found my career, found my man. We were doing our thing um, and definitely was not expecting any sort of tragedy, tragic moment. Um, I knew about six hours before he passed what was happening and continued trying to coordinate a search party to find him. And eventually he was, he was found. And now I found that through my experience, uh, I was not, I knew a couple people who had died by suicide, but I, I really didn't have that much experience. And then once I had my own firsthand experience, realized that there's not a lot of support for after. There are some really great support groups. Um, I was gifted some beautiful journals, prayer books, uh, but there wasn't anything that really said, you are going through the worst thing in your life right now. You can get through it. And also here are some tips. So that led me to decide that I wanted to write a book about that and maybe help someone else. I, I did hope in some random, totally irrational way that my husband's death by suicide would be the last one for eternity. Uh, that didn't happen. But um, within about three weeks after he passed, someone had reached out and said, can you be a support to someone who's going through the same thing? And um, so I ended up writing a book about my experience, just twofold. One to say, for others, you're not alone. It can be very isolating going through the grief process. And I really wanted to ensure that people understood you're not alone. And also in a way to provide perspective so that individuals going through their own their own experiences could see that while you're still going through the grief process, it's different. Um, and and to offer people an opportunity to still find that hope in their, within their own lives. So that's kind of where I landed here, being able to talk to both of you, because I think so much so much of the sentiment around suicide ends up being around anger, blame, and judgment because we don't end up getting to say, we don't we don't get those answers to the questions. We don't get to talk to the individual. It's so abrupt. Uh, and I really feel like there's a, a place where we can find more of that love and compassion for people who get to the point that they've decided the only choice they have left is to, to end their life. So I know that's a lot of information, but that's kind of how I um, got to this this moment in this journey and being able to speak with both of you today. Well, we're glad to have you here because you're right. The resources available for people who have experienced a loved one um, dying by suicide is really not 
really prevalent. You know, I think we think about all of the resources or things that people have available to them to support another person is like, you know, cards or books or groups. And and then it's hard to find. They're not readily available. Um, So I think that's why we were so excited to talk to you is to try to like bring out more of those resources for listeners, for people to, to find these things, because it's a unique experience in grief, I would assume. Um, I haven't personally gone through it. My brother's gone through it. His best friend died by suicide when we were in high school. Um, And so you know, there's, there's just kind of this hole there on how do you cope with something that people don't feel comfortable talking about? Yes, absolutely. And I think so much is on the prevention side, which I think is also fantastic and great. Um, I am finding in my experience in, in listening and hearing other stories that it's just inconsistent in that postvention piece or the aftermath, if you will. So I think it's great to try and bring some awareness to it. And I hope to empower people to really start having those conversations. They're hard, they're difficult conversations, but it's worth it, in my opinion, to be able to work through it and get to the other side, which is possible. It's hard. It's not, it's it's work. It does take work, um, but it is possible. What are some misconceptions about suicide? Um, Any that you personally feel would be important for our listeners to know. I will say, you know, Ryan and I are therapists, but um, like Ryan, my brother also, his friend um, died by suicide about six years ago. And I've never personally experienced it. And this is one of those things where there's a couple topics I would say in mental health where if you haven't experienced it, you'll never really know what it's like. And so, you know, in being sensitive to that, I think that I just want to put that out there as well, that, you know, if there's anything that you feel like misconception wise would be good for others to know. Yeah, that's a great, great question. And honestly, not one I get very often. Um, One of the first things, and I, again, speaking from my own experience and from the individuals that I've met, uh, we often look for signs and in all the individuals that I've met, and I, I do, I'm still active in a suicide support group um, here locally. Uh, no one has seen it coming, not even in hindsight. Sure, you can look in hindsight and say, oh, they were struggling a little bit here. They were struggling a little bit there. But honestly, you could take two people who have very similar lives, similar difficulties, and and one may die by suicide and the other may not. Um, so the sign one is a little bit harder for me because uh, I was asked immediately, didn't you know this was coming? Why didn't you stop him? It's like, I wouldn't have known. We were just planning a vacation literally two days before he passed. Like we were, we were just planning a vacation. Um, so I think, think that, and that one's hard because if we have signs, then it creates a little bit more predictability. And then that way we don't have to be so blindsided or hurt by it. And then we can try and find the right therapeutic intervention. Um, and, and so I'm still a big fan of finding those tools. And I usually say, find them when you're healthy so that when you are feeling off or rough or dark, that you're already in momentum and you already have a habit and can potentially still reach out and grab onto one of those tools. Uh, but there there were no signs uh, with Sean in that. I mean, I knew that he he was struggling, but not to the point that I ever would have considered that this is what would have happened. Um, and the other thing that I'd say is so often 
we like to say that it was related to one specific type of diagnosis. And it's true that there are individuals who may have a specific diagnosis. I think also it's just a culmination of factors. And that makes it also difficult because you're not pinpointing what the one reason is, right? If we had that one reason, then we could say, oh, if you have this, you're more likely to do this. So let's get you help. But in reality, um, at least in Sean's experience, you know, he had depressive symptoms, but I wouldn't necessarily have said that he was clinically depressed. Um, but there were a lot of factors feeling very stressed, um, feeling hopeless. He, he did feel like uh, he had shared with me that he felt like he just wasn't able to almost like win or be happy in any area because there was just one thing after another. And this was in the height of COVID too. So it's just one thing after another um, that continued to happen. So I think being more open and, and understanding that it doesn't always have to be tied to a clinical diagnosis. And it could just be that people get to a point where they're in so much pain and they don't want to burden other people that they find that this is their choice. One that I do not condone at all uh, and and wish every day that he could be back here. Um, but again, if he were to be here and still be in that pain, I'd be like, I think I think that wouldn't wouldn't be great either. So those are just a couple that come come to mind initially. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important to say that there's not always signs because I think there's so much talk and pressure in the community, like the mental health community about like prevention, prevention, prevention. And I don't know how you feel about this. And I know this is kind of a um, not so hopeful thing to say sometimes, but from what I've learned in working with people who have suicidal ideation or um, are more likely to commit suicide, it's something that they struggle with for such a long period of time that I, I don't know if it's necessarily that there's a, a magic thing that could help us save every single person. Um, I think that unfortunately suicide will always exist because there is no magic and there is no there's not always a sign that would help lead us to know that this is coming for them. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I appreciate you saying that because I think part of what happens, you know, if someone dies by cancer or if they have another illness, we have way more compassion for whatever's going on. But if someone dies by suicide, it's who's to blame? Who is there? Why didn't you do enough? Um, we, you know, and we can't blame that person because they're not here anymore to direct that frustration and anger. And really, in my opinion, anger is just a lot of sadness, right? Like that's where it stems from. Um, so I agree. Um, it It's interesting to see how that kind of transpires and to be able to have those conversations and go, it may always be here. And I agree that one, I think it's usually a split decision, not always. I have heard of cases where it was more planned, but in the majority of people I've met, it was a split decision. And two, that yes, it's it's not something that someone just wakes up one day and goes, you know what? I think I think today's the day I'm going to end my life. I think it is, um, whether it's trauma or negative experiences or negative thoughts about, you know, there's something that just continues with that individual over a longer period of time. And that emotion, like that emotional pain is so hard. It's not tangible, which is hard for the rest of us around because we can't see it. You know, it's not, it's not that tangible kind of pain. Right. 
Well, and you bringing up, you know, cancer or other diagnoses that may lead to somebody passing away. We don't tell their family members like, well, why, you know, why or how or, you know, like there's not those kind of like blaming questions. But when it comes to mental health and people dying by suicide, I think people are just so uncomfortable and unsure on how to handle it that they like search for a reason. I wanted to add something too. Um I think as humans, I've heard this before, I'm not going to adopt it as my own, but as humans, we search for meaning because meaning makes it feel whole and complete. And we're very, you know, reason, reason based, you know, if we can put together two things, then I know why I'm feeling X feeling. So I just wanted to throw that in there. No, I think that's so true. And I, I, I think you know, if someone, you know, to continue with this cancer diagnosis um, example, you know, if someone gets to a point that they, their body is just ravaged and they're like, I just give up, I'm done. And people tend to go, yeah, I get it. Like you're just in that much pain. Um, but similarly with that emotional pain, again, it's like, why, why not go to therapy? Why don't you like take a pill, do something for this? And not everyone feels they can access or that it'll work. And that meaning piece I think is so important um, actually, in my grief process, I, I've worked with multiple therapists and they have said, you know, part of that grieving process is finding meaning in what your life has left. And, and that one has been kind of a big part of that journey is finding that meaning. Because I say nothing nothing good comes from Sean dying, but maybe something good can come from my experience. Um, but I think it's really poignant for you to bring up that idea of looking for that meaning. We need to intellectualize what happened, you know, we're trying to rationalize the irrational essentially. Yeah, no, very good point, Lauren. I think that is important that we do search for those things and try to make meaning. And when we can't find it, it becomes part of that emotional process for us as well. Um, I, we wanted to talk a little bit about language because I, I, I learned this within the last couple of years on taking a lot of trainings around suicide. And we want to talk about the language that's used in common, you know, common society, you know, someone's committed suicide, you know, things along those lines. And what I had learned in my trainings is changing the language that they didn't commit suicide, they died by suicide. Um, So for you, in this experience, like how has language around suicide impacted you or things you've changed or like people to utilize instead that feel more like this person didn't do something wrong that they were suffering? Yeah. Thank you for this question too. Wow. You guys have some good ones today. <laughs> um, I, I do, I did consult multiple people after but initially, I I already kind of knew I would use die by suicide, um, and and I'll say the other one I'll, I'll say is he took his life. Um, the I'll say sometimes I have heard some people say, oh well, I know someone who killed themselves or killed himself. You know, um, that one for me, I don't know why that one for me is a little harder because um, it feels harsher to me. <laughs> you know, when we think about killing, it just seems harsher and more malicious, <laughs> maybe. Um, so I like to say he took his own life or he died by suicide. I will say um, I have become hypersensitive. I see it all the time in media and TV shows, uh, listening to music. I don't even remember what what song it is, honestly, but there's like the lyric it says, um, I would take, I would, um, what does he say? I'd shoot myself in the head for you. 
Um, and I'm like, oh, that's, and it's supposed meant to be like a love song. I'm like, okay, okay. That's, um, a little, a little intense. So I think it just brings more awareness for me in seeing just how much work I feel like we need to do to shift, uh, a little bit more towards that love and compassion and away from that anger and judgment. Um, I've had people who have never had experience with suicide, but they have felt the need to come tell me what what they think about those who do die by suicide, knowing my experience, like knowing that I've lost my husband. And so that's been interesting. And so I think that in in and of itself just um, motivates me to continue trying to have these types of conversations and empower others too. Yeah, it's really important to feel that whatever experience, language, however you choose to use all of that is what feels right for you. And it doesn't need to be, um, you know, I, I kind of can see where you're coming from with some of the language that's been used by others and how it might not fit for you. But I, I think that's a really big one. And, and definitely during like our grad school experience, the the language changed. I think when we first kind of started, it was more of um, what it used to be. And now more of the, you know, dying by suicide, which I, I personally think is, is a better way to have the compassion for others and not blame them because it's not about blame. It's about, um, you know, so much more than that. And I like that we're talking about compassion. I want to move into grief if that's okay with you. Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it. Um, Those who grieve feel like they have to grieve a certain way. Often, there is no right way to grieve. I will say that off the bat. But what would you tell someone who's grieving the loss of a loved one by suicide? And if you want to share a little bit about your experience as well and what that's looked like for you, that would be great. Yes. And And I would say I am so grateful that you are empowering people as well to that there's no wrong way to grieve. Um, that That is one of the, for me, I'm like, it's all right. All of it is correct. <laughs> um, if you're needing a moment to scream, if you need to go punch a bag, if you need to cry, if you're private, like that was a big thing for me. I, through this process, discovered, even, maybe I already knew, but didn't really understand how much I was a private griever. I would hold it together throughout the day. And then I knew every evening I had a ritual and I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And if I needed to scream, I screamed. Um, and that did not bode well for people because of exactly what you're talking about. We tend to project our own idea of grief onto others of this is how it's supposed to be. This is this is how I can tell that this person really mattered to you because of how you're grieving. And so my own grief process was called into question several times. And I was approached by people saying, we're concerned you're at my husband's memorial. You didn't cry. I'm like, this, what? I'm in the middle of COVID. I have a child and I am just trying to hold it together right now and, you know, walked out the doors and started bawling. But because I didn't cry as much in public, I was considered to be too businesslike and too stoic. Um, so I, I encourage people move through the feelings. Don't stuff them away. If you have to pause them until you're in a place that feels safe to experience them, do so. But you got to move through them. They feel horrible. It's yucky. It's awful, uh, but you've got to move through them, even the tiniest bit. And I like to also encourage people find 
find that one small thing that you can anchor to so that on the worst days where you don't want to get out of bed, maybe the only thing that you can do is actually go to the bathroom or have a drink of water, um, but have that one thing that you anchor to that continues to move you forward. That's a big one. Um, But tools, I'm also a big fan of collect as many tools as you can and tap into them every day. And it's different. And my tools are different every day on what I use, but I keep adding tools to my toolbox because this is this is a lifelong journey I'm on. I didn't want it. I didn't expect it. Um, I, and in fact, when it first happened, um, I, I'm an Aries. And so I go, oh, okay, <laughs> I got this. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get to the other side. I'm going to continue on with life. And then about six to eight months in, I went, oh, no, that's <laughs> that's not how this works. It morphs and changes. Uh, but that's why I'm I'm very particular about making sure that I have enough tools and I encourage other people to do so. Yeah, I'm also an Aries. So I understand that piece <laughs> of it because that is also my grieving process is usually it takes time. And then all of a sudden there's a kind of an opening of no longer suppressing feelings. But yeah, I, I think that's a huge piece of it. The 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 other people's experience of our grief is so interesting. Like you said, the way that they project what they think you should be doing because they may be doing it that way. And not everyone is comfortable crying in front of each other, other people and showing that emotion. And especially to lose somebody so close to you as like your partner um, and to not be able to go home and, and to grieve near them or with them. Um, I think just, allowing allowing the process to happen whatever way it's going to happen but like you said allowing the emotions to come if they're coming and you keep shutting them down the grief process really it gets stunted in a lot of ways yes and i'm grateful that very i think it was maybe day one or day two i was put in touch with a woman who had lost her husband uh, to suicide about seven years prior and one of the first things she said was, you are in the middle of an ocean on a surfboard and you're going to clutch onto that surfboard. And sometimes it's going to be calm and sometimes you're going to be in the middle of a squall. But whatever you do, you hold on to that surfboard. And that stuck with me. So every time I was feeling like I was inundated with emotion and grief, I just again found that anchor held on my surfboard and said, okay, there are calm seas that can happen. I like that analogy because, you know, in life you're given all these choices and when you're going through something painful and you're through this grieving process, it's really, it would be much easier to give up and plenty of people have, but, you know, if you can work through all of the roadblocks that come with the grief and loss and you're able to hold on, you know, there's so much more that's ahead of you, but you've got to, be actively participating in that as well, which which makes it even harder to be aware and feel all these feelings and going through this process, but still, you know, trying to get to the other side of what that looks like, but not even really getting to the other side, because I would say, you know, um, you know, I can't speak for other people, but this situation is, it's just, it's different. It's different because there there weren't opportunities to fully i would i would say fully take in the loss and that's why we keep bringing up like these scenarios like with cancer 
and like losing a loved one to to an illness it's not that you ever have to never you know like the grief won't ever stop there but it's just so different when someone is in front of you and you can see that their life is at the end you're able to kind of tell them everything that you wanted to tell them it's just not the same with this no and in fact i encourage people if they're in a situation where a a loved one is dying i've been i've had a few people recently where i've said tell them everything you want them to know now because even if you feel and even even for people who aren't ill i'm like tell your people every day you love them like look for really get your priorities straight look at how much of the trivial stuff are you getting stuck on look at the big picture and find your people and hold on to them because anything can happen at any time and not to live out of fear right don't i'm i'm not encouraging people to be fearful that they're going to lose a loved one immediately or right away more of more of the how can you heal your own hurts that's a big part of what i encourage people and am coaching now is heal your own hurts so that you can be more vulnerable with people and in your worth to tell them exactly how you feel. And well, like mostly from a love and compassion perspective, um, but really to love on your people and and how much that can shift and change relationship like that. Um, but it's true when it's this abrupt, there's, so, you know, when you go back, there's so many things. And I've, I've written Sean lots of letters saying, this is all the stuff I wish I had told you when you were alive. Yeah. Coming from a place of like almost like gratitude on a day-to-day basis for the people that are in your life and sharing your experiences with them as you go along, which is so hard for a lot of people, right? Like, so I think it's important oh. to re-remind ourselves of that. Yeah. me. I mean, it, this before this, obviously, as I just said, I didn't. And so now even... Even in my own experiences, I'm learning even how to how to potentially have another romantic partner or how to put, you know, how to be able to uh, let people into my life and into my orbit that wouldn't normally be there. How can I still be vulnerable and get over my own fears related to losing someone? And it it's a good reminder to just keep going. I mean, I love the work that you guys do because like just keep going. And I couldn't be where I am today if I hadn't tapped tapped into therapy as and like I said, I've had multiple therapists to tap into my tools to help me work through it all. Yes, therapy it can be really amazing if you know you're ready to um, work through the hard things. Um, going back to grief, in your book, you mentioned three phases of grief. We're familiar with the five stages of grief, but what are those three phases? Yeah. Um, so the the first one is the shock and awe. So that's that's kind of when, I mean, physiologically, you're in shock um, and it it's different for every person. So mine was about four months and I do remember exactly what happened when that fog lifted and it just it literally felt like a ton of bricks fell on me. Um, and I went, oh, now I'm, f- I mean, every emotion possible that I could feel and dread and fear. And I was staring at my front door going, oh, he's not walking in the door. Like, okay, all right, that is happening now. And that's really where you're just, I mean, it's straight survival, straight survival. Um, the second one is the now what? And that's usually where the fog has lifted. So now you're faced with this grief process. 
But by that point, in my opinion, people around you are starting to move forward or move. I say move forward, maybe for those individuals they're moving on, but life kind of goes back to normal for a lot of individuals. And you, um, in the now what phase it's, you're kind you're, it's in between, I have this grieving journey I have to embrace and do, and how do I handle all these emotions and this roller coaster I'm on? And at the same time, you've got business you have to take care of. I had a child, I had a house, I had my job. I was just, you know, still back at work, but had to take on more responsibility at work. There's still stuff to do with the estate, which is a whole nother thing, which I, it's so complicated. I didn't think it would ever be that complicated. Um, And so that's kind of where you're almost like, I say like straddling two different realities because you've got this like reality of your day to day, but then you have the reality of your emotional journey. And the third phase I talk about is finding the collateral beauty, which I did um, actually get from the movie collateral beauty. But that is where I feel like the pendulum swings a little bit and you know, it's where good days start to outweigh bad days. And there might be a few things that you're starting to look forward to, or you start to think, oh, I can actually plan for something. Or, you know, for me, it was when I started to recognize also that I could handle milestones with my son and not break down every time he was doing something. And that's really where you can find, start to see the beauty that life still has for you. Because individuals who are impacted this closely to suicide do have a higher chance of dying that way. But being able to really find that there is still joy that can be had in this life and that there's still purpose, I think purpose, and like you were talking about earlier, Lauren, with meaning, like being able to find that meaning in the life that you have left to live um, is where that collateral beauty comes in. And you start to see how, you get. I mean, grief to me is like tunnel vision, right? You're just in the thick of it. But when you can start to step back and see how much beauty there actually is, left to to embrace and to enjoy i like those i mean they're more like the kind of like pared down and not so like the five stages of grief unfortunately like has become like pop psychology and it's become misconstrued completely um but your um your last stage the finding the collateral beauty reminds me of david kessler's um finding finding meaning is his like sixth stage of grief which I think he can cons- he considers to be like the one of the most important stages that you go through in that process. So yeah, I think I think that's the big one is like that after after everything's happened, not feeling guilt about finding the beauty. Like, has that come up for you of like when you after your loss feeling guilty or feeling that negative feelings when things are lighting you up or making you feel good? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes. I don't, I don't think there's a way to not go through that guilt or feeling of, am I dishonoring my loved one? Um, even it, it could be anything of for the longest time, there's some of my husband's belongings where I'm like, nope, can't touch it. Not going to touch it. Not going to touch it. And then when I moved some of it from into like from my upstairs to my basement, it was like, oh, am I throwing him away? Am I just, dis- and he, at this point, he, he doesn't need any of his t-shirts left, you know, kind of thing. But um, it's absolutely a process of going through and then understanding, um, just again, working through to get to a point of it is okay to still live and have a good life and laugh. I mean, I'd go through, I think it's a, you, laughter is going to come at any point in time, but I laugh or, and then go, oh, 
maybe I'm not supposed to. Or I'd be really mindful about who I was around when I laughed. Like, oh, I can only laugh around this person or this person um, because I know that they won't judge me for laughing. Um, And again, part of that is conditioning or some of those projections about how we're supposed to mourn and what it's supposed to look like. You have to be straight-faced all the time or you have to be sad all the time. It's like just life's not like that. It just isn't. Um, But I love that that you bring that point uh, again of that meaning and finding purpose, which I think are just so important. Yeah. I am just soaking this all in. It's, it's, this topic is, it's, it's challenging. Definitely. Um, But I also do like the three phases of grief. I feel like that's a really good way. I might actually like pick up what you wrote and, and use it with when describing grief for my clients, because I just like the way that you describe them and, and they make a lot of sense. For, well, that would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, why not? I mean, these are great. Um, and also just you having the lived experience. It's just different. It's just different hearing others who have gone through something really hard and tragic and seeing what they're doing. You know, I mean, you talked about tools, but like we're able to pick up a lot from just this conversation, too, and use them for, you know, any other situation um, with clients or even in our day to day life. Um, so with that being said, moving f- towards like support, um, how, like what advice would you give someone who is going through something similar and how can we support those? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the hardest pieces about this is f- allowing or I guess allowing ourselves to reach out and say, I need help. Um, and, and I mean that not just for someone maybe who's who's having these feelings, but also someone who's in the grief process. I think, again, this, this whole process can feel very isolating and people you think who are going to be there for you aren't. And then people who you just least expected to be there for you are. And everyone is kind of awkward because they don't know what to say. And I just... Um, I just encourage with that small, whatever it is, if it's enlist a friend to help you, if you say, I need a therapist, enlist a friend to help you. My, I can say my sister found a support group for me right away. She got on the phone and started calling people. Um, I, I think it's just to not wait to ask for the help and, and to, just start, yeah, really just start reaching out if possible and know that you don't have to do this alone. And it really does take take a village. I did hear someone recently, I was reading an article where someone lost a loved one to suicide and and basically said that the only way she thinks anyone can get through it is by themselves. And I thought, oh no, like that that couldn't be more. And and I honor that other people may feel that way, right? Just as like the grief process. If that's if that's how you feel that you need to then still find tools in how you're doing it, whether it's journaling or um, again, like screaming into a pillow or going to a smash it room or throwing axes in a safe <laughs> manner. Um, but tapping into ways that will help you um, alleviate some of the f- physical response to have to our emotional reactions is, is really big. Um, but that taking that first step can be really hard. Again, I think with my personality, I just was like, oh no, I, I need to grasp on to whatever I can. And I had already 
been on a personal growth journey before Sean passed. So it was a little easier for me to tap into it. But if you aren't, you know, and I'm hoping, I am hoping, I'll say, this isn't up and running yet, but I am hoping to expand my website to have more resources where people can find support groups or I know there's a lot online, but sometimes it seems it's, you know, to it can be overwhelming to have to go look in multiple places to try and find the support. Um, but any any little step forward, I think, is is helpful. Did that answer your question, honestly? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have, um, it's not, it's personal, but not personal. I'm just curious on what your thoughts would be. So we have somebody at work whose husband um, just recently died by suicide. Um, and she just, she'll be back at work for the first time in over a month on Monday. And she's a very private person. She doesn't want anybody like nothing, like don't talk, don't send things like nothing. Um, how do you offer support for somebody if there's, they're kind of like putting up that wall there without, you know, sure. pushing boundaries, especially because she's a coworker. She's not, you know, a close friend or anything. Do you think it would be in- inappropriate to like buy your book and leave it in her, her office box? No, well, I don't, I don't know her very well. At first I'd say, no, yeah. uh, I don't think that would be inappropriate at all. Did you say inappropriate or appropriate? Um, inappropriate. I, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I, I would say, um, I was similar in a way where I had a lot of people who are reaching out saying, what do you need? And I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what I, I mean, what I really needed was my husband to be back with me and no one could do that. Um, I think what helped me the most besides I did ask for meals just because evenings were really hard. So for about a year after I was still get, people would just leave meals on my porch and I, I was okay with it. Um, what I appreciated the most, honestly, was just people reaching out and just saying, thinking about you and I'm here for you. That was it. There was no expectation of me getting back in touch with them. Um, even to this day, it's been two and a half years. And even to this day, sometimes I tell people like, keep reaching out. I have my moments where I just, I can't, I can't connect with people. And I know that I'm going through whatever grief moment I am. Um, but I think I think that's a way to if and I, I know you said she doesn't really want maybe just a te- like for me, it was text message. I was like, D- please don't call, but you can you can text me and just say you're thinking of me. And then when I was ready to connect with those people, they were there for me. And not always the majority, I would say of the people who understood that I couldn't answer their questions or people want to help. They can't fix it. And that drives people crazy a little bit. Um, and so they, they want to know a way to fix it. Um, and I don't know if using crazy is actually an appropriate word for that, but people really want to help and they don't know how to, and they, they can't fix the situation. Um, but that would be my recommendation is just continue to let her know that you're there for her. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. It's hard. It's, it's, it's so hard to, to want to be there for someone and not, and not know how. Yeah. And like you said, you know, most good people in this world want to help and, you know, people feel helpless in these situations, but I, I wrote down a couple of, of the ways to support. And I, I think that it's, it's great to just hear from you what helped for you and what could help for others. So Ryan, it was, if that was a good question to ask, kind of gives like, like a real world example if others need 
um, want to know what to do in a situation like yeah that. yeah especially because you don't want to cross a boundary but yeah you know also if there's resources you could provide for them without you know being up in their face about it you know and it's okay to not know what to say like I'm still awkward about how to speak to people um in regards to when I hear that they've lost someone, I'm like, oh, my initial reaction is, oh, that's a, yeah, that's that's a really that's a bummer, which not everyone wants to hear that either. So, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. Obviously, um, is appropriate as well, but it's okay not to know. And and I'll say for me, um, I was very affectionate before Sean and I would hold hands and hug. And after he died, I was like, don't touch me, like don't, no thanks. Yeah. Um, and that was really hard for people, but then people started to honor that and it became less of an issue. And once they could actually find other ways, like I said, of, of just reaching out or bringing me food, then people still were able to feel like they were supporting me, but in a way that I could receive it. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, what are some final takeaways that you would like our listeners to know or hear about um, as we wrap up our episode? Yeah, I think um, for people, for individuals who are are going through this or having lost someone close to them, again, I just want to encourage you to to find those tools um, and to to find that anchor piece that you can hold on to to help you get through it, and also that you can you can get through it. It may not feel like it, and you're not alone, not alone. And for individuals who are trying to support an individual going through this, just being there, and even if it's quietly. You know, if you're just you're just there so the person knows that you're there when they're ready is really, really helpful. And I am a big proponent. I mentioned it briefly, but get your affairs in order when you feel good, because <laughs> trying to go through this when you're going through grief is so much harder and find those tools when you're feeling good, because it is a lot harder when you're experiencing the tumultuous journey that grief is to tap into those tools. Thank you for sharing all of those takeaways. What is the name of your book, by the way? We never asked that. Oh, it's called The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. And it is available on Amazon and then barnesandnoble.com as well. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to connect? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I am on Instagram and um, I'm at forward to joy, just all lowercase forward to joy. And you can also, I do have a website forward to joy.com that has more resources as well. For as in F-O-R? Yes, forward okay. to joy. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate all that you shared. It was really good. It was really hard. And I'm just amazed how well you're doing. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're still in your grief journey. It's still a process. It'll be a lifelong process, but just really impressed with how you've been able to um, manage and make it, make it through with it being just, you know, in the last couple of years. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for, for your time. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I I know I may sound chipper sometimes and I and I try to have more energy for these conversations and I just like to let people know that I it's still up and down. It still happens. Um but there I am more in that finding the collateral beauty phase now 
than I have been before. But I, I'm just so appreciative of all the work that that you both do. And um, I just want to encourage more people to tap into the services that you you both have. Well, thank you, Alexandra. And thank you for the work that you're doing to put resources out there for other people and share your experience to create more support for other people. I think that is beautiful and really appreciated by so many people. And we're excited um, to have other people hear this conversation. So thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if you feel called to rate and review and share with the people in your life you think would like us too. For more info on this episode, check out the show notes. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at dopeshttherapypod and via email at dopeshttherapypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for more episodes.